The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. Today we're going to be speaking about understanding and increasing female sexual desire. We live in an interesting culture. For all the extremes of sexual behavior discussed and even depicted in the media, both men and women have a difficult time discussing the intimacy between them. And many women become very concerned when they feel they've lost sexual desire or any interest in sexual connection. How do we understand this? Can women increase their sexual desire? Our guest is Dr. Lori Brado, and she has answers. Dr. Lori Brado is a professor in the UBS Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a registered psychologist in Vancouver, Canada. She is the Executive Director of the Women's Health Research Institute of British Columbia and the UBC Sexual Health Laboratory, where research primarily focuses on developing and testing psychological and mindfulness-based interventions for women with sexual desire difficulties, arousal difficulties, and chronic genital pain. Dr. Brado is an associate editor for the Archives of Sexual Behavior. She has 150 peer-reviewed publications. Her new book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire, will be released in April 2018. Greystone is her publisher. Dr. Lori Brado, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I'm, I'm really quite privileged to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Brado, let's start by asking and answering the question, what is female sexual desire? So sexual desire is a term that has existed for centuries, if not millennia, um, and it can has been known in, in different forms, such as uh, libido or sexual interest. There have been a variety of more colloquial terms to refer to it as well throughout history, including contemporary times. But really what we're talking about is an individual's interest in sexual activity um, and, uh, and how, that, uh, how that is expressed towards another individual. Mm-hmm. Now, why do you think there's been so much misconception and confusion about how to elicit female sexual desire, difficulties with it? What do you think? Well, they're unfortunately compared to other important areas of health. 
sexual function and sexual response has not been a topic that has been researched very, very extensively, except really over the last 10 to 15 years or so. And we can really thank um, the approval of Viagra for that. So we know that after Viagra was approved in the United States in 1998 for the treatment of erectile difficulties in men, that this really led many experts to ask very parallel questions such as, well, what about women's sexual complaints? How common are those? What are some of the leading factors contributing to low desire and other sexual difficulties? And what can we do to improve them? So because research has been relatively recent, it means that there still exist many myths and and misconceptions and misperceptions about, first of all, what is sexual desire and how do we differentiate when this is a normal and adaptive change in sexual desire versus when this is something more clinically significant that might warrant uh, some type type of a, a, a targeted treatment. So how would a woman discern whether it's a kind of normal um, hiatus in sexual desire and, as you say, a situation of difficulty that would warrant intervention or treatment? Mm-hmm. So that can be a really difficult discernment to make because we know that stress and mood are are leading contributors to changes or, or loss of sexual desire. And sometimes uh, stress or, or um, an increase in depressive symptoms or anxiety might be quite adaptive to where that person is in their particular moment of time in their life. So it's really important for people to understand, okay, there are going to be ebbs and flows in sexual desire. And if I can make sense of this in the greater context of my life, such as, well, I've just had a baby and I'm not sleeping and all of my attention is focused on making sure that the primary needs of my child are are being met. That makes a lot of sense that for that period of time that a woman's level of sexual desire would be reduced or altogether absent. Um, however, as, uh, as, as she regains her sleep, as her sense of uh, herself and body image become restored back to a level that she feels happy with, then we would expect her sexual desire to slowly return. However, in the case where a change in desire is really persisting and how the experts define that would be at least six months or more. So if there's been uh, either a loss or a low level of desire for at least six months in most encounters, so that means most of her own sexual encounters that she's already engaging in, and if that reduction in desire is bothersome for her, so if it elicits some distress, then we would say, all right, this probably falls more in the category of being a clinically significant desire difficulty. Now, very often, because I work with couples, something like this happens. Let's say the woman has had a a baby, and six months later, even eight months later, she's not loving the fact that she hasn't lost weight. Mm -hmm. So she is avoiding sexual contact, and she doesn't have much of an interest because she actually, she hasn't defined herself as sexually desirable, despite the interest of her partner. Now, sometimes that decision that I can do without sex 
becomes a default position that's problematic for her as well as for the marriage. Do you get folks whose expectations about how they should look or what their partner should say feeds into the um, sexual desire, the arousal, etc.? Absolutely. And earlier I had mentioned stress and mood as being primary culprits in in changes in desire and body image and uh, faulty expectations uh, around that are are right up there with, with mood and stress. And we have lots and lots of scientific data that show that women are particularly judgmental of themselves, far more so, so than, than men are when it comes to their expectations of what their bodies should look like. And unfortunately, what happens is that in the sexual scenario, women can be very distracted by perceptions of negative body image. So they might either be preoccupied by a certain part of their body that is uh, stressful for them or, or bothersome to them, or they might altogether avoid a partner's touch in a certain part of their body if they have a fear that the partner might notice that there's this um, that there's this problematic area, and of course, when when those partners are interviewed afterwards, partners are are certainly not preoccupied with the the body parts in the same way that women are. So all of this becomes really problematic for a number of reasons. Number one is as body image concerns rise, so does the anxiety that goes along with that. So anxiety and and stress and distress and all of those, of course. Um, are are really not conducive to eliciting sexual desire. The other reason, though, why preoccupations about body are so problematic is because they serve as distractions. So rather than women focusing on the positive sexual touches, um, focusing on the early signs of arousal and having the brain kind of pick up on those signals, it's as if the brain is not receiving any positive feedback about sexual sensations in the body and is just being bombarded with negative judgments around the body image. So those kinds of preoccupations of with the body really get in the way of the, the mind and the body communicating with one another during sex. Mm. Now, in, in terms of that, <clears throat> why do you think they came out with a kind of a female Viagra drug why did that fizzle? Did that not do the trick? So there, there had been a long race leading up to the final uh, and eventual approval of the of the the female sexual desire drug known as Addy, uh, or otherwise known as Flabanserin. That was approved in the summer of 2015. And all of the experts felt that Addy would be the one to win the race because unlike many of the other medications, including Viagra, Addy worked on the brain. So the idea was that, you know, finally we have a medication that's going to target these brain centers that are really quite key for eliciting sexual desire. Now, when the studies were done and the studies that led to its approval were based on about 11,000 women who participated in, in, you know, different parts of the United States as well as Europe, um, what they found is that compared to a placebo condition, that yes, women receiving Addy did significantly better than those in the placebo condition, but really not by much. 
so uh, the main measure in, in those studies was the frequency of sexual encounters that women had that they rated as being satisfying. So the number of sexually satisfying events per month. And what the data showed was that ADDIE resulted in a total of one more sexually satisfying event per month compared to the women in the placebo group. So, again, statistically significant, but when we talk about real-world impact, does one additional event per month that is now satisfying, is that really going to be sufficient for cultivating women's sexual desire? And I think that the uptake in, uh, in ADDIE, um, or in other words, the lack of uptake, meaning that the number of prescriptions that have been written for ADDIE has been really very, very low, um, suggests that, it, you know, it's really an underwhelming medication, although it is the only one to date that is approved and available through the FDA. What's so interesting is when we take the medication piece out, we know with couples, the greatest motivation for being sexual is having a prior successful sexual encounter. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to really believe that, as you say, and maybe that is why it didn't take off. It seems to me, with that in mind and what you're saying and what I've seen you've written, correct me on this one, from all your work, you have the feeling that for women, the sexual response is really related to the mind being in sync with the body. Yeah, very very much that um, there there's a certain aspect of women's sexual functioning or sexual response that is automatic. Um, so we know that the lubrication response when women view something erotic and, and you know many women can relate to this. They might see a scene on television or in a movie and all of a sudden have this automatic lubrication response or physical response. But that doesn't necessarily translate into her wanting sex or feeling desire. And in fact, many women will say that when that happens, they're either not turned on in their mind or, or frankly, they might be turned off. And so those findings have led researchers to really focus on that mind-body connection in that it's not, it's not simply enough to have the body respond. The, the, the mind has got to be tuned in and focused um, and receiving feedback from the body. Um, and, and once the brain does that, it will in turn send messages back down to the body to continue the arousal. So it's really about this kind of bi-directional feedback between the brain and the body working together. And the first prime mover is the brain. It, it is, yes. The brain is the first prime mover, and it can also be the first prime inhibitor if yes. women are distracted or have uh, other types of uh, interferences related to mood. Mm-hmm. Now, would you say, and we're going to take a brief break, but would you say we have a significant number of women who struggle with um, des- problems of sexual desire, problems of sexual dysfunction, yeah, so the, the, that question has been examined uh, quite a number of times and in quite a number of different ways. 
um, since Viagra was in, approved, and, and it also depends on how you ask the question. So when you look at broad populations of women and you ask women, over the last year, have you had a lasting sexual difficulty of any type, whether it was changes in desire or problems with arousal or difficulty reaching orgasm, where that difficulty lasted at least two months or more, um, there have now been three studies that have found that about 40% of women uh, will uh, will say that. So two in five women will say, yeah, over the last year I've had a significant period of time where there's been a difficulty. Um, but when we focus in specifically on let's say, a desired uh, disorder, which, um, uh, you know, can be classified according to some of the um, available psychiatric and diagnostic manuals. Um, And that really requires not only the problematically low or absent desire, but also that women are significantly distressed by it. Then the numbers go down a bit. They go down to about 20%. But still, one in five women will meet the criteria of a sexual desire disorder. Okay. We're going to stop right there for a break. And when we come back from this break, we're going to talk about interventions. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Lori Brado. She's the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute in British Columbia. Her research is on sexual desire and arousal difficulties. She's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What makes a great leader? Most have a vision, one that starts beyond the resources available and continues from that point into developing a solid plan, organization, and company. Leadership issues are discussed each week on VoltCast, illuminating leadership with host Jeff Smith. Jeff has years of experience as a leader and executive coach, and his guests will bring you information that can help a team of any size. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Have you ever given any thought to what is behind your insurance coverage? Many of us don't think of it as more than that premium you pay on a regular basis. Of course, until you actually need to use it. 
On CYA with Rhonda, you'll learn to cover your assets and find out what all of that insurance mumbo-jumbo really means. If you're looking for a lucrative career option, Rhonda Lukey will explain how to get into the insurance business. Listen live every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking to Dr. Lori Brado about women with sexual desire and arousal difficulties, how we defined it. And now we're going to talk a little bit about interventions. Dr. Brado, I know one of the things, and uh, we'll be encouraging our listeners to find you online, that your research has sort of directed um, focus at is the management of arousal, genital pain, um, and how it is that you can work with women, what types of interventions have really been successful, what can our listeners learn from some of the step-by-step interventions that you've actually um, offered women? Great. So, the, and it's such an important question, Suzanne, because of course, as as women are experiencing sexual difficulties, especially low desire, um, their their primary um, uh, kind of entry into treatment might be that they would speak to a primary care provider, and often women will ask the question, "Is this because of my hormones? Um, is this because you know I have low levels of testosterone, and can they be measured?" And one of the important things to say at the outset, um, although there certainly are physical contributors to changes in desire or low desire, all of the studies that have looked at levels of testosterone in women who have low desire find that they, they don't differ at all from women who have uh, more robust levels of desire. So what it means then is that we need to look at other um, effective and evidence-based kinds of, of treatments that, um, uh, and that's been the primary driver of a lot of the research that I do. So my work has focused mostly on adapting existing mindfulness-based interventions, which have been around for at least 40 years or so. So mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which um, are traditionally delivered in groups, so groups of individuals who might have a common concern, whether it's chronic pain or anxiety, or they're in um, the relapse phase of a depression. Um, and what we have sought to do was to, to take some of these existing and evidence-based mindfulness interventions and really adapt them to meet the needs of women with sexual concerns. And we did that through a number of ways. One was uh, we first worked one-on-one with women and um, asked them what would the components of a treatment need to look like to make sure that we adequately address your, your sexual concerns. 
And the feedback from women was, you know, first and foremost, provide good, solid, and accurate information about sexuality. And so that's been a core component of all of our treatments delivered alongside the mindfulness is making sure that women are provided with up-to-date and evidence-based information about, you know, what are the controllers of sexual desire and arousal? Um, what are What do we know about distractions and how they get in the way? What is the role of the brain? So throughout all of the different interventions we've tested, having having good education or psychoeducation has been a core component. Um, and then uh, over the last uh, 12 years or so, we've evaluated mindfulness for women uh, with different kinds of sexual concerns in different ways. We've done this face-to-face, one-on-one. We've done it face-to-face in group. And we've done it entirely online. And what we found across those different studies is that it mattered little how the intervention was developed, but but really the, the mindfulness component led women to experience significant and lasting increases in their sexual desire. And by lasting, I mean that after the treatment was done, we invited women back into our research laboratory a year later and found that some of the gains that they had made in terms of sexual satisfaction and desire and and quality of life were still maintained. What's so interesting to me, because we've had a number of shows that have recommended mindfulness, mindful aging, mindfulness and running, and they've been really very valuable, and we can see how mindfulness becomes a real personal resource. But in particular, I listened to one YouTube in which you mentioned that for general pain, they had tried many things, including lidocaine, antidepressants, and the placebo did just as well as those. So then I think it is that you introduced mindfulness. And when you think about having to be focused in the moment to really have arousal, mindfulness becomes key, it seems to me, for women addressing this issue. It's not going to happen if you're really making a laundry list in your head. That's exactly right. And um, it's, been, it's been so lovely to work with, with women with genital pain and be able to offer them um, a strategy that not only empowers them and feels like there's something that they can do to improve their experience of pain, um, but in the end, it, it actually does work. And so our latest uh, work, we've just recently finished a five-year study where we um, had uh, half of the women were randomized to a cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a well-established, uh, well-known treatment for managing the distress along that happens with genital pain. And the other half of women participated in an eight-week mindfulness group. Um, And what we found, actually, is that the women in the mindfulness group, um, they did better on the the primary measure of uh, self-report of pain with vulval vaginal contact. And we followed women for a year later and found that those benefits were maintained. And so that finding is so important because, as, as you mentioned, Suzanne, Many of the kind of first-line treatments, which might involve a topical lidocaine cream or even some of the pain medications that are commonly given to to uh, experiencers of chronic pain, 
they, the, the research has found them to be no better than placebo when we're dealing with um, chronic vulval vaginal pain. Uh, and so this finding that mindfulness might be an effective treatment for women and that it's accessible and it's something that they can do on their own um, and that it improved a number of other uh, measures, not only pain, but quality of life, um, overall sexual function and mood, um, that's, that really positions women to be in a place where they're, they're no longer experiencing, you know, these chronic symptoms for year after year after year without any letting up. You know, um, it, it does seem so important. And I was just wondering, um, I actually love the idea that it's done in group because I'm a big group person in terms of um, someone feeling not alone, someone not feeling stigmatized. And I'm just wondering, were there actually, was online group one of the ways that a person could get help for sexual arousal problems, sexual desire problems? Was that one of the treatment um, options? Yeah, we we did a study um, with survivors of gynecologic cancer um, who also experienced distressing changes in their sexual desire and arousal. And one of the obstacles in doing a face-to-face group, although, um, you know, I'll make it very, very clear, I love running groups. And, and if that were the only thing I ever did, I would be a very happy person is running groups. But it's a real barrier for people living in, you know, remote remote areas of, uh, of, of you know, your, the country or, or the province or state that you're in. Um, and there may be outright barriers in those individuals getting treatment. So they may live in a city where there are no care providers that deliver mindfulness or other mental health providers. So having the option to deliver these treatments online means that you, your reach is far greater. Now, what we, we did find that the participants in the online mindfulness intervention did have significant improvements. So they, uh, all of the, all of the uh, meditation sessions were delivered via an audio file and they kind of followed along with their computer. But women did tell us at the end of the study that they would have really valued the opportunity to interact, um, even if so online, but to interact with other women who are going through the same thing. And uh, so what we're doing now is we have another study just about to launch where we're um, trying to replicate that earlier design, but we've now included this chat function that uh, all of the participants in the group will be able to log on at the same time and have online conversations with one another. Uh, And it's because, you know, there's that group magic that happens when participants come together, especially around sexual concerns that they might otherwise not talk talk about even with their closest friends. So to be able to be in an, in a group with other women going through the exact same thing who won't judge them, who understand what they're going through can be really quite therapeutic. I could imagine it would be just because of the, not only do women suffer with these problems, but they feel shame and self-blame about it. So it absolutely would be a wonderful thing. So if I'm part of your group, let's say, what is... What are some of the ways that I could actually apply, it's a broad topic, mindfulness, what are some of the techniques that I'm actually guided in that would help me and help me be in a better place psychologically and mentally 
so that I can start to feel sexual again. Mm-hmm. So over the years, we've experimented with what's the best way to do that? Do we start out right away by encouraging women how to practice mindfulness during sex? Um, do, do we do this on their own? And where we've um, kind of landed uh, in recent years, and this has been supported by a lot of feedback from women, hundreds of women who've participated in our groups, is that um, it becomes really important to start out with a solid foundation of mindfulness practice on their own. So one of the exercises that we start with is an eating meditation, and this is fairly standard for other kinds of meditation groups that are run for chronic pain or or anxiety or depression. So in our group, we start out with a meditation on a raisin. So we pass around a plate of raisins. Each person is um, instructed to take just one. We refer to it as an object, not as a raisin. And the reason we do that is because even the word raisin, um, it conjures up very specific meanings and memories and maybe judgments, especially if the person doesn't like raisins. So we refer to it as an object, and then over the course of about 10 or 15 minutes, we guide the person to use all of their senses to really take in uh, sensations of of the, the raisin, the object, that they otherwise maybe would ignore. So we would guide them to look at it, notice how the light um, uh, shines on the on its surface, noticing its shape, noticing the contours. Uh, we would have the person kind of roll it around in their hand and notice the weight of it, the texture of it. Um, and then eventually when we guide people to put the, the raisin in their mouth without chewing, um, we invite them to really focus on what the sensations are. And in a really powerful way, what happens is people realize that even before the raisin is introduced in the mouth or chewed, that there is a very strong physical response. So as the body is getting ready to ingest the raisin, it starts salivating. Um, the smells suddenly become more intense. And then we guide them to chew very slowly. And while they're chewing, mindfully observing all of the, the feelings as, as the, the raisin is, is going down their esophagus. And I love this as a starting meditation because it really, in a quite a powerful and very brief way, illustrates how our experience can be so different simply by paying attention. And then from there, we move on to other guided meditations where the woman might be encouraged to focus on her breath um, or focused on different parts within her body. And after women um, have practiced these kinds of solo activities for about a month, we then start to gradually introduce meditations that they can do along with a partner. So what we're really doing in this is... I mean, I remember some people, you mentioned in one of your YouTubes that, that some of the participants said, what has this got to do with sex? But actually, it it's really, if you become trained in mind focus, the whole experience with the raisin shows you that your body follows. So mm-hmm. that mental focus, all of a sudden you're salivating. And so just even having developed that capacity to focus becomes a very, very valuable tool, as you've pointed out, in terms of sexual preparation, sexual arousal, and sexual desire. That's exactly right. And so 
we really root all of the teachings um, uh, in in women practicing themselves. And so, w- what we find is that when women start to practice mindfulness and start to make these powerful observations of, wow, when I pay attention, suddenly sensations are that much more vivid, or I didn't realize that I have this feeling in this part of my body. And that can convey so much more than if we were to simply tell it to them in the outset or with a handout or with a PowerPoint presentation. So all of the learning directly arises from their practice of the mindfulness exercises. It's terrific. We're going to take a brief break, and then we're going to come back and talk about more interventions and... um, how you could even reach Dr. Lori Brado. Um, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Brado, and <clears throat> she's the author of a soon-to-be-released book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire. It'll be released this April 2018. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with co-hosts Thomas Rosenberg and Ronnie Langer Kroger. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as we speak with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to the Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest 
at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Lori Brado. Her expertise is focusing on interventions for women with sexual desire and arousal difficulties. <clears throat> We've been talking about applications of mindfulness. And one of the other techniques that I've read about that you use has to do with pain and the use of the two-arrow approach. And I wondered if you could just mention that. Sure. So the the two arrows story is is really um, an an old Buddhist um, parable that that essentially is about uh, a story of the person you know walking through the forest and and getting struck by an arrow and the first thing they notice um, is the pain the, the pain sensation so the the throbbing the cutting the shooting pain the warmth etc. Um, and then as they're walking, they're struck by a second arrow in the same spot. And what happens with the second arrow is um, all of the questions like, why me? Why has this happened? Will this ever stop? Um, how can I feel safe? And, and really, it's the second arrow where a lot of the kind of psychological suffering comes in. And we take that story and we apply it to modern day experiences of crime chronic pain. And what we know is that individuals who experience chronic pain, that it's often that second arrow of suffering, the, you know, the why me, will this ever stop, that's really the source of much of their emotional suffering and emotional pain. So when we teach uh, mindfulness techniques to women who suffer from chronic genital pain, it's really that second arrow that we're, we're trying to work through in sessions together. And it can seem a bit paradoxical because women who experience chronic genital pain, all they want to do is distract from it. So many of them will say that they continue to engage in sex, but will do so very, very quickly. They'll sort of bypass foreplay, um, request that they, you know, quickly get through sexual intercourse so that it gets over with and, and the duration of their pain is really minimized and they just want to distract from it. Um, and so women with chronic pain are really quite used to avoidance behavior and distraction. Um, and what we're suggesting with a mindfulness-based approach is that we actually do the opposite of that. Rather than tuning out, we're really encouraging women to tune in and to tune in very closely to the sensations of the pain. And when we do that, when we really tune into the qualities of the pain and we encourage women to take note of um, its intensity, the characteristics of the pain, whether there's a warmth associated with it, um, its location, uh, whether there's a vibration. So again, really focusing on the bare sensations of the pain what we find, and the research has found this now in a, in a few different studies, is that their distress actually lessens. So by tuning in, it results in a reduction in that second arrow pain. And over time, that, that it actually decreases the pain intensity itself. 
Um, and so we've used this phenomenon now, this observation, to really inform how we treat uh, genital pain in the various clinics that, that I'm affiliated with. And mindfulness has really become a frontline treatment option for women experiencing chronic genital pain. And I remember one of the additional pieces to that, um, I think, is also to be able to focus on something that's giving you physical comfort and pleasure, to be able to put the focus on that. That that's right because uh, you know one of the other thing that happens with with chronic pain um, or even let's say low desire is that we might not notice where there is pleasure. Uh, so with an over focus either on pain or discomfort or what's not happening, we actually miss out on well where does it feel good? So even even though pain is happening, are there other parts of my body that are actually responding in in, in quite a positive and, and pleasant way. And so mindfulness really helps to um, tune in uh, throughout the body. Yes, where is there discomfort? Where is there neutral or no feeling? And where are those parts that actually still feel really, really good? And, and it's important to take note of that. And um, again, because as soon as we notice that, then those messages get sent back up to the brain to encourage the body to continue to respond in that way. Mm. Now, as a woman is really becoming um, good at mindfulness focus and she's seeing that there's some relief, have women talked about how they translate this into communicating with their spouse, what works for them or their, in, their, their improvement? Did, does, does the training involve any type of how do I now communicate with my spouse who assumes I have no interest in sex and is now so depressed or so upset he's not interested either? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thankfully there's actually been um, other researchers that have uh, developed and done a number of studies on mindfulness-based communication training between partners. Um, and essentially, it's it's really built on the on the idea of you know when there's conflict and we have emotions that are really activated, we really lose the ability to really hear what the other person is saying because we just get kind of wrapped up in our own narrative or, or our own interpretations. Um, and so we we build some of that educational information into our treatment. Um, and what we find is that as women start to benefit sexually from the mindfulness exercise. Is they're really quite motivated to keep practicing these for other parts of their life, including their relationship. So um, we dig up one of the very old um, exercises known as sensate focus, which has been around for a long, long time, uh, developed by Masters and Johnson in the 1950s, um, and essentially involves couples... Um, in, a, in a pair, um, systematically touching one another while the person who's receiving the touch really focusing in on, on the sensations of touch. Um, through my own mind, this is, this is a, a mindfulness exercise, although it was never described as such. Um, so exercises like that are, are great for taking the mind reading out of sexual activity. And we know that mind reading is a very prevalent concern in couples, especially couples in long-term relationship, where they might say, well, we've been together 30 years. My partner should know by now what I like. And so in turn, they end up not communicating to the partner about about what their preferences are and, and in turn the things that they don't like. So um, things like uh, these couple-based 
mindfulness exercises or sensate focus really help to ensure the lines of communication are open, um, that they're communicated in a non-judgmental way, and that they're communicated in real time. They're, they're communicated moment by moment, not based on a past memory or based on a prediction of what might happen, but they're really based on uh, the real time experience. That's so important, and it's such a great message. So, can we say with your book coming out, if I'm kind of a shy person, or I'm actually someone who's who likes to get help from self-help books, would your book answer some of these questions for me and actually help me take on some of these activities and expand and learn mindfulness? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's been written in that way. Um, it's it, the the book. I think what I what I really like about um, where it, where uh, it's gone is that it folds in the scientific evidence. So it refers to really the bulk of the science that has evaluated mindfulness, and it describes where some of the improvements are. Um, and then it weaves in um, many of the the very exercises that we've done with women over the last uh, uh, dozen or so years. Um, and so they are literally um, replicated from our treatment manuals that we use um, in our in our treatment setting with women. So to answer your question, um, yes, absolutely. The person who, who reads the book will not only have the background information and the science, but they'll have kind of a step-by-step guide on how to actually do this in their own life. Well, that's terrific. So how would people order the book and how would they find you if they live somewhere outside of the United States, internationally, um, and they wanted more information about programs like this and people like you? Great. So um, I'm fairly easy to locate. Um, if if one were to just uh, type my name into into a browser like Google, so Lori Brado, um, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Dr. Lori Brado, um, and my website that um, lists several of our ongoing research studies is BradoLab.com. Um, those would be probably the easiest ways to to find me. The book itself is available on pre order on Amazon. Uh, It's listed as Better Sex Through Mindfulness through Greystone Publishing. And as you mentioned, it will be out um, in early uh, 2018. Mm -hmm. From all your work, um, Dr. Brado, what would be the take-home message that you would give our listeners in this with respect to women understanding and improving sexual desire? I think the take-home message is that regardless of your age, regardless of the number of years that you've been in your relationship, sexual desire is something that can be cultivated, um, and that even if you don't feel like you have a robust level of sexual desire in your kind of day-to-day life, with some deliberate focus and exercise and mindfulness is one fantastic um, and scientifically uh, proven way to do it, that, that sexual desire is something that can be elicited. It's terrific. I want to thank you, Dr. Lori Brado, for coming on the show and for your research and your persistent desire to translate your findings to interventions that really answer the pain, fear, and self-blame so many wonderful women struggle with. I know your book will help many. Thank you again for being our guest. 
Thank you so much for having me on the show, Suzanne. It's, it's uh, really been lovely for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast. This show will be a podcast by early evening. Um, you can also hear the podcast not only on the Voice America podcast app site, but on your iPhone, iTunes, Sketcher, and many, many podcast sites on your devices. Remember to drop me a line at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly, until next week, please take care, reach out with kindness, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.